Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, episode 28. I have a few quick announcements. First, I would like to apologize for this episode coming out late. We ran into a few technical difficulties. Second, while this podcast is not going anywhere, I am in the process of starting up a small business. Seeing as how this podcast is entirely a one-man effort, this may delay or cause me to skip a couple of episodes. However, hopefully in the near future we'll be able to get this smoothed out and return to our regular schedule. In this episode we have two stories, one by William Hope Hodgson and one by H.G. Wells. So, without further ado, let's get to it. William Hope Hodgson was an English author. He produced a large body of work consisting of essays, short fiction, and novels spanning several overlapping genres including horror, fantastic fiction, and science fiction. He spent time as a merchant marine, he was an avid pursuer of physical education, and he fought and died in World War I. Hodgson joined the University of London Officers Training Corps, refusing to have anything to do with the sea despite his experience and third mate certificate. He received a commission as a lieutenant in the Royal Artillery. In 1916, he was thrown from a horse and suffered a broken jaw and a serious head injury. He received a mandatory discharge and returned to writing. Refusing to remain on the sidelines, Hodgson recovered sufficiently to re-enlist. His published articles and stories from this time reflect his experience in war. He was killed by a direct impact of an artillery shell at the Fourth Battle of Ypres in April 1918. Sources suggest either the 17th or the 19th. He was eulogized in the Times on May 2, 1918. The American magazine Adventure, to which Hodgson had contributed fiction, also ran an obituary which reprinted a clipping from his widow describing how Hodgson led a group of NCOs to safety under heavy fire. Demons of the Sea by William Hope Hodgson Come out on deck and have a look, darky, Jepson cried, rushing into the half-deck. The old man says there's been a submarine earthquake and the sea's all bubbling and muddy. Obeying the summons of Jepson's excited tone, I followed him out. It was as he had said. The everlasting blue of the ocean was mottled with splotches of a muddy hue, and at times a large bubble would appear to burst with a loud pop. Aft, the skipper and the three mates could be seen on the poop, peering at the sea through their glasses. As I gazed out over the gently heaving water, far off to windward something was hove up into the evening air. It appeared to be a mass of seaweed, but fell back into the water with a sullen plunge as though it were something more substantial. Immediately after this strange occurrence, the sun set with tropical swiftness, and in the brief afterglow things assumed a strange unreality. The crew were all below, no one but the mate and the helmsman remaining on the poop. Away forward on the topgallant forecastle head, the dim figure of the man on lookout could be seen, leaning against the forestay. No sound was heard save the occasional jingle of a chain sheet or the flog of the steering gear as a small swell passed under our counter. Presently the mate's voice broke the silence, and, looking up, I saw that the old man had come on deck and was talking with him. From the few stray words which could be overheard, I knew they were talking of the strange happenings of the day. Shortly after sunset, the wind, which had been fresh during the day, died down, and with its passing the air grew excessively hot. Not long after two bells, the mate sung out for me and ordered me to fill a bucket from overside and bring it to him. When I had carried out his instructions, he placed a thermometer in the bucket. 
Just as I thought, he muttered, removing the instrument and showing it to the skipper. Ninety-nine degrees. Why, the sea's hot enough to make tea with. Hope it doesn't get any hotter, growled the later. If it does, we shall all be boiled alive. At a sign from the mate, I emptied the bucket and replaced it in the rack, after which I resumed my former position by the rail. The old man and the mate walked the poop side by side. The air grew hotter as the hours passed, and, after a long period of silence broken only by the occasional pop of a bursting gas bubble, the moon arose. It shed but a feeble light, however, as a heavy mist had arisen from the sea, and through this the moonbeams struggled weakly. The mist, we decided, was due to the excessive heat of the seawater. It was a very wet mist, and we were soon soaked to the skin. Slowly the interminable night wore on, and the sun arose, looking dim and ghostly through the mist which rolled and billowed about the ship. From time to time we took the temperature of the sea, although we found but a slight increase therein. No work was done, and a feeling as of something impending pervaded the ship. The foghorn was kept going constantly as the lookout peered through the wreathing mists. The captain walked the poop in company with the mates, and once the third mate spoke and pointed out into the clouds of fog. All eyes followed his gesture. We saw what was apparently a black line which seemed to cut the whiteness of the billows. It reminded us of nothing so much as an enormous cobra standing on its tail. As we looked, it vanished. The grouped mates were evidently puzzled. There aired to be difference of opinion among them. Presently, as they argued, I heard the second mate's voice. That's all rot, he said. I've seen things in fogs before, and they've always turned out to be imaginary. The third mate shook his head and made some reply which I could not overhear, but no further comment was made. Going below that afternoon, I got a short sleep, and on coming on deck at eight bells, I found that the steam still held us. If anything, it seemed to be thicker than ever. Hansard, who had been taking the temperatures during my watch below, informed me that the sea was three degrees hotter, and that the old man was getting into a rare old state. At three bells, I went forward to have a look over the bows, and a chin with Stevenson, whose lookout it was. On gaining the forecastle head, I went to the side and looked down into the water. Stevenson came over and stood beside me. Rum go, this, he grumbled. He stood by my side for a time in silence. We seemed to be hypnotized by the gleaming surface of the sea. Suddenly, out of the depths, right before us, there arose a monstrous black face. It was like a frightful caricature of a human countenance. For a moment, we gazed petrified. My blood seemed suddenly to turn to ice water. I was unable to move. With a mighty effort of will, I regained my self-control, and, grasping Stevenson's arm, I found I could do no more than croak. My powers of speech seemed gone. Look! I gasped. Look! Stevenson continued to stare into the sea like a man turned to stone. He seemed to stoop further over, as if to examine the thing more closely. Lord, he exclaimed, it must be the devil himself. As though the sound of his voice had broken a spell, the thing disappeared. My companion looked at me, while I rubbed my eyes, thinking that I had been asleep, and that awful visitation had been a frightful nightmare. One look at my friend, however, disabused me of any such thought. His face wore a puzzled expression. Better go aft and tell the old man, he faltered. I nodded and left the forecastle head, making my way aft like one in a trance. 
The skipper and the mate were standing at the break of the poop, and, running up the ladder, I told them what we had seen. Bosh! sneered the old man. You've been looking at your own ugly reflection in the water. Nevertheless, in spite of his ridicule, he questioned me closely. Finally, he ordered the mate forward to see if he could see anything. The later, however, returned in a few moments to report that nothing unusual could be seen. Four bells were struck, and we were relieved for tea. Coming on deck afterward, I found the men clustered together forward. The sole topic of conversation with them was the thing which Stevenson and I had seen. I suppose, Darky, it couldn't have been a reflection by any chance, could it? One of the older men asked. Ask Stevenson, I replied as I made my way aft. At eight bells, my watch came on deck again to find that nothing further had developed. But about an hour before midnight, the mate, thinking to have a smoke, sent me to his room for a box of matches with which to light his pipe. It took me no time to clatter down the brass-treaded ladder and back to the poop where I handed him the desired article. Taking the box, he removed a match and struck it on the heel of his boot. As he did so, far out in the night a muffled screaming arose. Then came a clamor as of horses braying, like an ass, but considerably deeper and with a horribly suggestive human note running through it. "'Good God! Did you hear that, Darky?' asked the mate in awed tones. "'Yes, sir,' I replied listening, and scarcely noting his question, for a repetition of the strange sounds. Suddenly the frightful bellowing broke out afresh. The mate's pipe fell to the deck with a clatter. "'Run forward!' he cried. "'Quick, now! See if you can see anything!' With my heart in my mouth and pulses pounding madly, I raced forward. The watch were all up on the forecastle head, clustered around the lookout. Each man was talking and gesticulating wildly. They became silent and turned, questioning glances toward me as I shouldered my way among them. "'Have you seen anything?' I cried. Before I could receive an answer, a repetition of the horrid sounds broke out again, profaning the night with their horror. They seemed to have definite direction now, in spite of the fog which enveloped us. Undoubtedly, too, they were nearer. Pausing a moment to make sure of their bearing, I hastened aft and reported to the mate. I told him that nothing could be seen, but that the sounds apparently came from right ahead of us. On hearing this, he ordered the man at the wheel to let the ship's head come off a couple of points. A moment later, a shrill screaming tore its way through the night, followed by the hoarse braying sounds once more. "'It's close, on the starboard bow!' exclaimed the mate as he beckoned the helmsman to let her head come off a little more. Then, singing out for the watch, he ran forward, slacking the lee braces on his way. When he had the yards trimmed to his satisfaction on the new course, he returned to the poop and hung far out over the rail, listening intently. Moments passed that seemed like hours, yet the silence remained unbroken. Suddenly the sounds began again, and so close that it seemed as though they must be right aboard us. At this time I noticed a strange booming note that mingled with the brays, and once or twice there came a sound which can only be described as a sort of gug-gug. Then would come a wheezy whistling, for all the world like an asthmatic person breathing. All this while the moon shone wanly through the steam which seemed to me to be somewhat thinner. Once the mate gripped me by the shoulder as the noises rose and fell again. They now seemed to be coming from a point broad on our beam. Every eye on the ship was straining into the mist, but with no result. 
Suddenly, one of the men cried out as something long and black slid past us into the fog astern. From it there rose four indistinct and ghostly towers which resolved themselves into spars and ropes and sails. A ship! It's a ship! we cried excitingly. I turned to Mr. Gray. He too had seen something and was staring aft into the wake. So ghost-like, unreal, and fleeting had been our glimpse of the stranger, that we were not sure that we had seen an honest material ship, but thought that we had been vouchsafed a vision of some phantom vessel like the Flying Dutchman. Our sails gave a sudden flap. The clue irons flogged the bulwarks with hollow thumps. The mate glanced aloft. "'Wind's dropping,' he growled savagely. "'We shall never get out of this infernal place at this gate.' Gradually, the wind fell until it was flat calm. No sound broke the death-like silence save the rapid patter of the reef points as she gently rose and fell on the light swell. Hours passed, and the watch was relieved, and I then went below. At seven bells we were called again, and as I went along the deck to the galley, I noticed that the fog seemed thinner and the air cooler. When eight bells were struck, I relieved Hansard at coiling down the ropes. From him I learned that the steam had begun to clear about four bells, and that the temperature of the sea had fallen ten degrees. In spite of the thinning mist, it was not until about half an hour later that we were able to get a glimpse of the surrounding sea. It was still mottled with dark passages, but the bubbling and popping had ceased. As much of the surface of the ocean as could be seen had a peculiarly desolate aspect. Occasionally a wisp of steam would float up from the nearer sea and roll undulatingly across its silent surface until lost in the vagueness which still held the hidden horizon. Here and there columns of steam rose up in pillars which gave me the impression that the sea was hot in patches. Crossing to the starboard side and looking over, I found that conditions there were similar to those in port. The desolate aspect of the sea filled me with an idea of chilliness, although the air was quite warm and muggy. From the break of the poop, the mate called me to get his glasses. When I had done this, he took them from me and walked to the taffrail. Here he stood for some moments, polishing them with his handkerchief. After a moment, he raised them to his eyes and peered long and intently into the mist astern. I stood for some time staring at the point on which the mate had focused his glasses. Presently, something shadowy grew upon my vision. Steadily watching it, I distinctly saw the outlines of a ship take form in the fog. See? I cried, but even as I spoke, a lifting wraith of mist disclosed to view a great four-masted bark lying becalmed with all sails set within a few hundred yards of our stern, as though a curtain had been raised and then allowed to fall, the fog once more settled down, hiding the strange bark from our sight. The mate was all excitement, striding with quick, jerky steps up and down the poop, stopping every few moments to peer through his glasses at the point where the foremaster had disappeared in the fog. Gradually, as the mists dispersed again, the vessel could be seen more plainly, and it was then that we got an inkling of the cause of the dreadful noises in the night. For some time the mate watched her silently, and as he watched the conviction grew upon me that in spite of the mist I could detect some sort of movement on board of her. After some time had passed, the doubt became a certainty, and I could also see a sort of splashing in the water alongside of her. Suddenly the mate put his glasses on top of the wheel box and told me to bring him the speaking trumpet. 
Running to the companionway, I secured the trumpet and was back at his side. The mate raised it to his lips, and taking a deep breath sent a hail across the water that should have awakened the dead. We waited tensely for a reply. A moment later, a deep, hollow mutter came from the bark. Higher and louder it swelled until we realized that we were listening to the same sounds which we had heard the night before. The mate stood aghast at this answer to his hail. In a voice barely more than a hushed whisper, he bade me call the old man. Attracted by the mate's hail and its unearthly reply, the watch had all come aft and were clustered in the mizzen rigging in order to see better. After calling the captain, I returned to the poop where I found the second and third mates talking with the chief. All were engaged in trying to pierce the clouds of mist which half hid our strange consort, and arriving at some explanation of the strange phenomena of the past few hours. A moment later the captain appeared carrying his telescope. The mate gave him a brief account of the state of affairs and handed him the trumpet. Giving me the telescope to hold, the captain hailed the shadowy bark. Breathlessly, we all listened when, again, in answer to the old man's hail, the frightful sounds arose on the still morning air. The skipper lowered the trumpet and stood with an expression of astonished horror on his face. Lord, he exclaimed, what an ungodly row! At this, the third, who had been gazing through his binoculars, broke the silence. Look, he ejaculated, there's a breeze coming up astern. At his words, the captain looked up quickly, and we all watched the ruffling water. "'That packet yonder is bringing the breeze with her,' said the skipper. "'She'll be alongside in half an hour.' Some moments passed, and the bank of fog had come to within a hundred yards of our taffrail. The strange vessel could be distinctly seen just inside the fringe of the driving mist wreaths. After a short puff, the wind died completely." but we stared with hypnotic fascination. The water astern of the stranger ruffled again with a fresh cat's paw. Seemingly, with the flapping of her sails, she drew slowly up to us. As the leaden seconds passed, the big foremaster approached us steadily. The light air had now reached us, and with a lazy lift of our sails, we too began to forge slowly through that weird sea. The bark was now within fifty yards of our stern, and she was steadily drawing nearer, seeming to be able to outfoot us with ease. As she came on, she luffed sharply, and came into the wind with her weather leeches shaking. I looked toward her poop, thinking to discern the figure of the man at the wheel. But the mist coiled around her quarter, and objects on the after end of her became indistinguishable. With a rattle of chain sheets on her iron yards, she filled away again. We, meanwhile, had gone ahead, but it was soon evident that she was the better sailor, for she came up to us hand over fist. The wind rapidly freshened, and the mist began to drift away before it, so that each moment her spars and cordage became more plainly visible. The skipper and the mates were watching her intently, when an almost simultaneous exclamation of fear broke out from them. My God! And well, they might show signs of fear for crawling about the bark's deck were the most horrible creatures I had ever seen. In spite of her unearthly strangeness, there was something vaguely familiar about them. Then it came to me that the face which Stevenson and I had seen during the night belonged to one of them. Their bodies had something of the shape of a seal's, but of a dead, unhealthy white. The lower part of the body ended in a sort of double curved tail on which they appeared to be able to shuffle about.
In place of arms, they had two long, snaky feelers, at the ends of which were two very human-like hands equipped with talons instead of nails. Fearsome indeed were these parodies of human beings. Their faces, which, like their tentacles, were black, were the most grotesquely human things about them, and the upper jaws closed into the lower after the manner of the jaws of an octopus. I have seen men among certain tribes of natives who had faces uncommonly like theirs, but yet no native I had ever seen could have given me the extraordinary feeling of horror and revulsion which I experienced towards these brutal-looking creatures. "'What devilish beasts!' burst out the captain in disgust. With this remark, he turned to the mate, and, as he did so, the expressions on their faces told me that they had all realized what the presence of these bestial-looking brutes meant. If, as was doubtless the case, these creatures had boarded the bark and destroyed her crew, what would prevent them from doing the same with us? We were a smaller ship and had a smaller crew, and the more I thought of it, the less I liked it. We could now see the name on the bark's bow with the naked eye. It read Scottish Heath, while on her boats we could see the name bracketed with Glasgow, showing that she had hailed from that port. It was a remarkable coincidence that she should have slant from just the quarter in which yards were trimmed, as before we saw she must have been drifting about with everything aback. But now, in this light air, she was able to run along beside us with no one at her helm, but steering herself she was, and although at times she yawed wildly, she never got herself aback. As we gazed at her, we noticed a sudden movement on board of her, and several of the creatures slid into the water. "'See? See? She's spotted us! They're coming for us!' cried the mate wildly. It was only too true. Scores of them were sliding into the sea, letting themselves down by means of their long tentacles. On they came slipping by scores and hundreds into the water, and swimming towards us in droves. The ship was making about three knots, otherwise they would have caught us in a very few minutes, but they persevered, gaining slowly but surely and drawing nearer and nearer. The long, tentacle-like arms rose out of the sea in hundreds, and the foremost ones were already within a score of yards of the ship before the old man bethought himself to shout to the mates to fetch up the half-dozen cutlasses which comprised the ship's armory. Then, turning to me, he ordered me to go down to his cabin and bring up the two revolvers out of the top drawer of the chart table, also a box of cartridges which was there. When I returned with the weapons, he loaded there and handed one to the mate. Meanwhile, the pursuing creatures were coming steadily nearer, and soon half a dozen of the leaders were directly under our counter. Immediately, the captain leaned over the rail and emptied his pistol into them, but without any apparent effect. He must have realized how puny and ineffectual his efforts were, for he did not reload his weapon. Some dozens of the brutes had reached us, and as they did so, their tentacles rose into the air and caught our rail. I heard the third mate scream suddenly, and turning, I saw him dragged quickly to the rail with a tentacle wrapped completely around him. Snatching a cutlass, the second mate hacked off the tentacle where it joined the body. A gout of blood splashed into the third mate's face, and he fell to the deck. A dozen more of those arms rose and wavered into the air, but they now seemed some yards astern of us. A rapidly widening patch of clear water appeared between us and the foremost of our pursuers, and we raised a wild shout of joy. 
The cause was soon apparent, for a fine, fair wind had sprung up, and with the increase in its force, the Scottish Heath had got herself aback, while we were rapidly leaving the monsters behind us. The third mate rose to his feet with a dazed look, and as he did so, something fell to the deck. I picked it up and found that it was the severed portion of the tentacle of the third mate's adversary. With a grimace of disgust, I tossed it into the sea, as I needed no reminder of that awful experience. Three weeks later, we anchored in San Francisco. There, the captain made a full report of the affair with the authorities, with the result that a gunboat was dispatched to investigate. Six weeks later, she returned to report that she had been unable to find any signs, either of the ship herself or of the fearful creatures which had attacked her. And since then, nothing, as far as I know, has ever been heard of the four-masted bark Scottish Heath, last seen by us in the possession of creatures which may rightly be called demons of the sea. Whether she still floats, occupied by her hellish crew, or whether some storm has sent her to her last resting place beneath the waves, is purely a matter of conjecture. Perchance, on some dark fog-bound night, a ship in that wilderness of water may hear cries and sounds beyond those of the wailing of the wind. And then, let them look too, for it may be that the demons of the sea are near them. This story was first published in Sea Stories on October 5th, 1923. H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells, usually referred to as H.G., was an English writer. He was prolific in many genres, writing dozens of novels, short stories, and works of social commentary, satire, biography, autobiography, and history, including even two books on war games. He is now best remembered for his science fiction novels and is often called a father of science fiction, along with Jules Verne and Hugo Gernsback. The Sea Raiders by H.G. Wells 1. Until the extraordinary affair at Sidmouth, the peculiar species, Haplotuthus ferox, was known to science only generically on the strength of a half-digested tentacle obtained near the Azores. Decaying body pecked by birds and nibbled by fish, found early in 1896 by Mr. Jennings near Land's End. In no department of zoological science, indeed, we are quite so much in the dark with regard to the deep-sea cephalopods. A mere accident, for instance, it was that led the Prince of Monaco's discovery of an early dozen new forms in the summer of 1895, a discovery in which the before-mentioned tentacle was included. It chanced that a catchalot was killed off Tersiera by some sperm whalers in its last struggles charged almost to the prince's yacht, missed it, rolled under, and died within twenty yards of his rudder, and in its agony threw up a number of large objects which the prince, dimly perceiving they were strange and important, was, by a happy expedient, able to secure before they sank. He set his screws in motion and kept them circling in the vortices, thus created until a boat could be lowered, and these specimens were whole cephalopods and fragments of cephalopods, some of gigantic proportions, and almost all of them unknown to science. It would seem, indeed, that these large and agile creatures, living in the middle depths of the sea, 
must, to a large extent, forever remain unknown to us, since under the water they are too nimble for nets, and it is only by such rare, unlooked-for accidents that specimens can be obtained. In the case of Haplotuthus ferox, for instance, we are still altogether ignorant of its habitat, as ignorant as we are of the breeding ground of the herring or the seaways of the salmon, and zoologists are altogether at loss to account for its sudden appearance on our coast. Possibly it was the stress of a hunger migration that drove it hither out of the deep, but it will be, perhaps, better to avoid necessarily inconclusive discussion and to proceed at once with our narrative. The first human being to set eyes upon a living Haplotuthus, the first human being to survive, that is, for there can be little doubt that the wave of bathing fatalities and boating accidents that traveled along the coast of Cornwall and Devon in early May was due to this cause, was a retired tea dealer of the name of Fison, who was stopping at Sidmouth boarding house. It was in the afternoon, and he was walking along the cliff path between Sidmouth and Ladrum Bay. Cliffs in this direction are very high, but down the red face of them, in one place, a kind of ladder staircase has been made. He was near this when his attention was attracted by what at first he thought to be a cluster of birds struggling over a fragment of food that caught the sunlight and glistened pinkish-white. The tide was out, and this object was not only far below him, but remote across a broad waste of rock reefs, covered with dark seaweed and interspersed with slivery, shining tidal pools. And he was, moreover, dazzled by the brightness of the further water. In a minute, regarding this again, he perceived that his judgment was in fault, for over the struggle circled a number of birds, jackdaws and gulls, for the most part, the latter gleaming blindly when the sunlight smote their wings, and they seemed minute in comparison with it, and his curiosity was, perhaps aroused, all the more strongly because of this insufficient explanations. As he had nothing better to do than amuse himself, he decided to make this object, whatever it was, the goal of his afternoon walk instead of Ladrum Bay conceiving it might perhaps be a great fish of some sort, stranded by some chance and flapping about in its distress, so he hurried down the long steep ladder, stopping at intervals of thirty feet or so to take a breath and scan the mysterious movement. At the foot of the cliff he was, of course, nearer his object than he had been, but on the other hand, it now came up against the incandescent sky beneath the sun, so as to seem dark and indistinct. Whatever was pinkish of it was now hidden by a scurry of weedy boulders, but he perceived that it was made up of seven rounded bodies, distinct or connected, and that the birds kept up a constant croaking and screaming, but seemed afraid to approach it closely. Mr. Fison turned by curiosity, began picking his way across the wave-worn rocks, and finding the wet seaweed that covered them thickly, rendered them extremely slippery. He stopped, removed his shoes and socks, and rolled his trousers above his knees. His object, of course, was merely to avoid stumbling into the rocky pools about him, and perhaps he was rather glad, as all men are, of an excuse to resume, even for a moment, the sensations of his boyhood. At any rate, it is to this, no doubt, that he owes his life. He approached his mark with all the assurance which the absolute security of this country against all forms of animal life gives its inhabitants. The round bodies moved to and fro, but it was only when he surmounted the scurry of boulders that I mentioned that he realized the horrible nature of the discovery. It came upon him with some suddenness. The rounded bodies fell apart as he came into sight over the ridge, and displayed the pinkish object to be a partially devoured body of a human being. But whether of a man or woman, he was unable to say, and the rounded bodies were new and ghastly-looking creatures, in a shape somewhat resembling an octopus, with huge, very long, flexible tentacles coiled copiously on the ground. The skin had a glistening texture, unpleasant to see like shining leather. 
the downward bend of the tentacles around her mouth, the curious exorescence at the bend, the tentacles, and the large, intelligent eyes gave the creature a grotesque suggestion of a face. They were the size of a fair-sized swine about the body, and the tentacles seemed to him to be many feet in length. There were, he thinks, seven or eight, at least, of the creatures. Twenty yards beyond them, amid the surf of the now-returning tide, two others were emerging from the sea. Their bodies lay flatly on the rocks, and their eyes regarded him with evil interest. But it does not appear that Mr. Fison was afraid, or that he realized that he was in any danger. Possibly his confidence is to be ascribed to the limpness of their attitudes. But he was horrified, of course, and intensely excited and indignant at such revolting creatures preying upon human flesh. He thought they had chanced upon a drowned body. He shouted to them, with the idea of driving them off, and finding they did not budge, cast about him, picked up a big rounded lump of rock, and flung it at one. And then, slowly uncoiling their tentacles, they all began moving towards him, creeping at first deliberately and making a soft purring sound to each other. In a moment, Mr. Fison realized that he was in danger. He shouted again through both of his boots and started off with a leap forthwith. Twenty yards off, he stopped and faced about, judging them slowly. And behold, the tentacles of their leader were already pouring over the rocky ridge which he had just been standing. At that, he shouted again, but this time not threatening, but a cry of dismay, and began jumping, striding, slipping, wading across the uneven expanse between him and the beach. The tall red cliffs seemed suddenly at a vast distance, and he saw, as though they were creatures in another world, two minute workmen engaged in the repair of the latter way, and little suspecting the race for life that was beginning below them. At one time he could hear the creatures splashing in the pools not a dozen feet behind him, and once he slipped and almost fell. They chased him to the very foot of the cliffs, and desisted only when he had been joined by the workmen at the foot of the latter way up the cliff. All three of the men pelted them with stones for a time, and then hurried to the cliff-top along the path towards Sidmouth to secure the assistance of a boat and to rescue the desecrated body from the clutches of these abominable creatures. 2. And as if he had not already been in sufficient peril that day, Mr. Fison went with the boat to point out the exact spot of his adventure. As the tide was down, it required a considerable detour to reach the spot, and when at last they came off the ladder way, the mangled body had disappeared. The water was now running in, submerging at first one slab of slimy rock and then another, and the four men in the boat, the workmen, that is, the boatman and Mr. Fison, now turned their attention to the bearings off the shore of the water beneath the keel. At first they could see little below them, save a dark jungle of laminaria, with an occasional darting fish. Their minds were set on adventure, and they expressed their disappointment freely. But presently they saw one of the monsters swimming through the water seaward with a curious rolling motion that suggested to Mr. Fison the spinning roll of a captive balloon. Almost immediately after, the waving streamers of laminaria are extraordinarily perturbed, parted for a moment, and three of these beasts became darkly visible, struggling for what was possibly some fragment of the drowned man, in a moment the copious olive-green ribbons that poured again over this writhing group. At that, all four men, greatly excited, began beating the water with oars and shouting, and immediately they saw a tumultuous movement among the weeds. They desisted to see more clearly, and as soon as the water was smooth, they saw, as it seemed to them, the whole sea bottom among the weeds set with eyes. "'Ugly swine!' cried one of the men. "'Why, there's dozens!' And forthwith the things began to rise through the water about them, Mr. Fison has since described to the writer the startling eruption out of the waving luminaria meadows. 
To him it seemed to occupy a considerable time, but it is probable that really it was an affair of a few seconds only. For a time, nothing but eyes. And then he speaks of tentacles streaming out and parting the weed fronds this way and that. Then these things, growing larger, until at last the bottom was hidden by their intercoiling forms, and the tips of tentacles rose darkly here and there into the air above the swell of the waters. One came up boldly to the side of the boat, and clinging to this with three of its sucker-set tentacles, threw four others over the gunwale, with an intention either of oversetting the boat or of clambering into it. Mr. Fison at once caught up the boat hook, and jabbing it furiously at the soft tentacles, forced it to desist. He was struck in the back and almost pitched overboard by the boatman, who was using his oar to resist a similar attack on the other side of the boat but the tentacles on either side at once relaxed their hold, slid out of sight, and splashed into the water. "'We'd better get out of this,' said Mr. Fison, who was trembling violently. He went to the tiller while the boatman and one of the workmen seated themselves and began rowing. The other workmen stood up in the forepart of the boat, with the boat hook ready to strike at any more tentacles that might appear. Nothing else seems to have been said. Mr. Fison had expressed the common feeling beyond amendment. In a hushed, scared mood, with faces white and drawn, they set about escaping from the position into which they had so recklessly blundered. But the oars had scarcely dropped into the water before dark, tapering, serpentine ropes had bound them, and were about the rudder, and creeping up the sides of the boat with looping motion came the suckers again. The men gripped their oars and pulled, but it was like trying to move a boat in a floating raft of weeds. "'Help here!' cried the boatman, and Mr. Fison and the second workman rushed to help lug at the oar. Then the man with the boat hook, his name was Ewan or Ewan, sprang up with a curse and began striking downward over the side, as far as he could reach, at the bank of tentacles that now clustered along the boat's bottom. And, at the same time, the two rowers stood up to get a better purchase for the recovery of their oars. The boatman handed his to Mr. Fison, who lugged desperately, and, meanwhile, the boatman opened a big clasped knife, and leaning over the side of the boat, began hacking at the spiring arms upon the oar shaft. Mr. Fison, staggering with the quivering rocking of the boat, his teeth set, his breath coming short, and the veins starting out in his hands as he pulled at the oar, suddenly cast his eyes seaward, and there, not fifty yards off, Across the long rollers of the incoming tide was a large boat standing in towards them with three women and a little child in it. A boatman was rowing, and a little man in a pink ribboned straw hat and whites stood in the stern hailing them. For a moment, of course, Mr. Fison thought of help, and then he thought of the child. He abandoned his oars forthwith, threw up his arms in a frantic gesture, and screamed to the party in the boat to keep away. For God's sakes! It says much for the modesty and courage of Mr. Fison that he does not seem to be aware that there was any quality of heroism in his action at this juncture. The oar he had abandoned was at once drawn under, and presently reappeared floating about twenty yards away. At the same moment Mr. Fison felt the boat under him lurch violently, and in a hoarse scream, a prolonged cry of terror from Hill, the boatman, caused him to forget the party of excursionists altogether. He turned and saw Hill crouching by the forward rowlock, his face convulsed in terror, and his right arm over the side and drawn tightly down. He gave now a succession of short, sharp cries. Oh! 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 Mr. Fison believes that he must have been hacking at the tentacles below the waterline and had been grasped by them, but 
Of course, it is quite impossible to say now certainly what had happened. The boat was heeling over, so the gunwale was within ten inches of the water, and both Ewan and the other laborer were striking down into the water with oar and boat hook on either side of Mr. Hill's arm. Mr. Fison instinctively placed himself to counterpoise them. Then Hill, who was a burly, powerful man, made a strenuous effort and rose almost to a standing position. He lifted his arm, indeed, clean out of the water. Hanging to it was a complicated tangle of brown ropes, and the eyes of one of the brutes that had hold of him, glaring straight and resolute, showed momentarily above the surface. The boat heeled more and more, and the green-brown water came pouring in a cascade over the side. Then Hill slipped and fell with his ribs across the side, and his arm and the mass of tentacles about it splashed back into the water. He rolled over. His boots kicked Mr. Fison's knee as the gentleman rushed forward to seize him, and in another moment, fresh tentacles had whipped about his waist and neck, and after a brief, convulsive struggle, in which the boat was nearly capsized, Hill was lugged overboard. The boat righted with a violent jerk that all but sent Mr. Fison over the other side, and hid the struggle in the water from his eyes. He stood staggering to recover his balance for a moment, and as he did so, he became aware that the struggle and the inflowing tide had carried them close upon the weedy rocks again. Not four yards off a table rock still rose in rhythmic movements above the inwash of the tide. In a moment, Mr. Fison seized the oar from Ewan, gave one vigorous stroke, then dropping it, ran to the bows and leapt. He felt his feet slide over the rock, and by a frantic effort, leapt again towards the further mass. He stumbled over this, came to his knees, and rose again. Look out! cried someone, and a large drab body struck him. It was knocked flat into a tidal pool by one of the workmen, and as he went down he heard smothered, choking cries that he believed at the time came from Hill. Then he found himself marveling at the shrillness and variety of Hill's voice. Someone jumped over him, and a curving rush of foamy water poured over him and passed. He scrambled to his feet, dripping, and without looking seaward, ran as fast as his terror would let him shoreward. Before him, over the flat space of scattered rocks, stumbled the two workmen, one a dozen yards in front of the other. He looked over his shoulder at last, and seeing that he was not pursued, faced about. He was astonished. From the moment of the rising of the cephalopods out of the water, he began acting too swiftly to fully comprehend his actions. Now it seemed to him as if he had suddenly jumped out of an evil dream, for where the sky, cloudless and blazing with the afternoon sun, the sea weltering under its pitiless brightness, the soft creamy foam of breaking water, and the low, long, dark ridges of rock, the righted boat floated, rising and falling gently on the swell, about a dozen yards from shore. Hill and the monsters, all the stress and that tumult of that fierce fight for life, had vanished as though they had never been. Mr. Fison's heart was beating violently. He was throbbing to the fingertips, and his breath came deep. There was something missing. For some seconds he could not think clearly enough what this might be. Sun, sky, sea... Rocks? What was it? Then he remembered the boatload of excursionists. It had vanished. He wondered whether he had imagined it. He turned and saw the two workmen standing side by side under the projecting masses of the tall pink cliffs. He hesitated whether he should make one last attempt to save the man Hill. His physical excitement seemed to desert him suddenly and leave him aimless and helpless. He turned shoreward 
stumbling and wading towards his two companions. He looked back again, and there were now two boats floating, and the one furthest out at sea pitched clumsily bottom upward. 3. So it was, Haplotuthus Ferox made its appearance upon the Devonshire coast. So far, this has been its most serious aggression. Mr. Fison's account, taken together with the wave of boating and bathing casualties to which I have already alluded, and the absence of fish from the Cornish coasts that year, points clearly to a shoal of these voracious deep-sea monsters prowling slowly along the subtidal coastline. Hunger migration has, I know, been suggested as the force that drove them hither, but, for my own part, I prefer to believe the alternative theory of Hemsley. Hemsley holds that a pack or shoal of these creatures may have become enamored of human flesh by the accident of foundered ship-sinking among them, and have wandered in search of it out of their custom zone, first waylaying and following ships, and so coming to our shores in the wake of the Atlantic traffic, but to discuss Hemsley's cogent and admirably stated arguments would be out of place here. It would seem that the appetites of the shoal were satisfied by the catch of eleven people, for, so far as can be ascertained, there were ten people in the second boat, and certainly these creatures gave no further signs of their presence off Sidmouth that day. The coast between Seaton and Budleigh Salterton was patrolled all that evening and night by four preventative service boats, the men in which were armed with harpoons and cutlasses, and as the evening advanced, a number of more or less similarly equipped expeditions organized by private individuals joined them. Mr. Fison took no part in any of these expeditions. About midnight, excited hails were heard from a boat about a couple of miles out at sea to the southeast of Sidmouth, and a lantern was seen waving in a strange manner to and fro, up and down. The nearer boats at once hurried towards the alarm. The venturesome occupants of the boat, a seaman, a curate, and two schoolboys, had actually seen the monsters passing under their boat. The creatures, it seems, like most deep-sea organisms, were phosphorescent, and they had been floating five fathoms deep or so, like creatures of moonshine through the blackness of the water. Their tentacles retracted as if asleep, rolling over and over, and moving slowly in a wedge-like formation towards the southeast. These people told their story in gesticulated fragments, as first one boat drew alongside, and then another. At last there was a fleet of eight or nine boats collected together, and from them a tumult, like the chatter of a marketplace, rose into the stillness of that night. There was little or no disposition to pursue the shoal. The people had neither weapons nor experience for such a dubious chase, and presently, even with a certain relief, it may be the boats turned shoreward. And now, to tell what is perhaps the most astonishing fact in this whole astonishing raid, we have not the slightest knowledge of the subsequent movements of the shoal, although the whole southwest coast was now alert for it. But it may, perhaps, be significant that a catchalot was stranded off Sark on June 3rd, two weeks and three days after this Sidmouth affair. A living Haplotuthus came ashore on Calais Sands. It was alive because several witnesses saw its tentacles moving in a convulsive way, but it is probable that it was dying. A gentleman named Pochet obtained a rifle and shot it. That was the last appearance of a living Haplotuthus. No others were seen on the French coast. 
On the 15th of June, a dead carcass, almost complete, was washed ashore near Torquay, and a few days later a boat from the Marine Biological Station, engaged in dredging off Plymouth, picked up a rotting specimen, slashed deeply with a cutlass wound. How the former had come by its death was impossible to say, and on the last day of June, Mr. Egbert Kane, an artist, bathing near Newland, threw up his arms, shrieked, and was drawn under. A friend bathing with him made no attempt to save him, but swam at once for the shore. This was the last fact to tell of this extraordinary raid from the deeper sea. Whether it is really the last of these horrible creatures, it is, as yet, premature to say. But it is believed, and certainly it is to be hoped, that they have returned now, and returned for good to the sunless depths of the middle seas, out of which they so strangely and so mysteriously arisen. Well, this story was first published in 1896 in Weekly Sun Literary Supplement. It was included in The Planter Story and Others, a collection of short stories by Wells, published by Methuen and Company in 1897. It was also included in The Country of the Blind and Other Stories, a collection of short stories by Wells, published by Thomas Nielsen and Sons in 1911. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and you may have noticed that there was a new voice appearing in this episode. The story of the Sea Raiders was read by my friend Aaron Jesse. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygontales at gmail.com. We also have a website at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and click on the link for Bygone Tales. You can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider stopping by one of those sites and leaving us a review. Any review helps. And until next time.